we have a tendency to say we can't understand Mishma because we're Americans. Mm-hmm. Believe me, the Japanese do not understand him either. He is as unfathomable to them. Yeah. Perhaps more so because they feel they should understand him. And we just assume we can't. Mm-hmm. And maybe, therefore, we can understand him better. Um, and he, uh, he is a most, obviously, most peculiar man and a puzzle of a man who uh, was a prodigy as a writer and uh, wrote very quickly and became famous very young. Yeah. And then grew disenchanted with words themselves and gradually turned himself into one of his own characters, one of his own creations. And so that his final work... Uh, uh, is his death, uh, and it was staged uh, as one would stage a, a theater production. The location was selected, the audience was notified, the, the press was notified, uh, the date was known a year in advance, he designed the costumes, and he wrote the script. And uh, and he cloaked it in a kind of political uh, facade in order to give it a, a greater importance. But basically what it was was the final uh, interior drama that he had been acting out and reacting for uh, 20 years. You are listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. The following podcast contains adult language, adult situations, and spoilers for the movies discussed occur often. You've been warned. Now, take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight. And welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 246. And I'm your host, Lee, determined to make people weep, Russell. And I'm joined by a very special co-host today from the Solid Six podcast, Brady. Hey, a, line of, a line of poetry written in a splash of blood, Kimball. How are you Ooh. doing, sir? Does that mean that I'm going to be uh, committing seppuku? seppuku? I apologize to any Japanese listeners for that pronunciation that yeah. Brady just gave. Harry <laughs> Carey, okay. Harry Carey. The famous uh, Chicago Cubs uh, radio announcer. <laughs> TV broadcast. Broadcastman. <laughs> Uh, glad to have you on, Brady. Even though you've alienated uh, our our Japanese uh, listeners, which yeah, we, uh, as far as I know, we had none anyway. Yeah, so, yeah, we've been talking about this for a little bit, getting on one of each other's shows, and so mm-hmm. you and I obviously have been on, uh, not obviously, but we've been on the Compañeros uh, family podcast. So that was like what we met a year or two ago. So it's cool to be able to. It's yeah, it's been a while. It's it's definitely been a while. Um, kind of, we're kind of like these sort of podcast satellites that keep sort of mm-hmm. getting in each other's orbit once in a while kind of thing. I, I, I find that happens a lot with, especially with like uh Companero's radio network where it's just like shit tons of people come in and out of all their different podcasts. So yeah. 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 Matt's a little movie slut. Mm-hmm. He is. It's, it's, podcasting is incredibly incestuous. So uh, <laughs> I mean, it's the best. It's the best man in the in the current times we're in, where I'm like stuck in this this room that is now my prison, which was originally my office. <laughs> being able to meet people and stay connected has been a, a good rare treat in these times. So certainly kept kept, kept me much more sane yeah. than uh, than usual uh, since COVID. Yeah, 
especially. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, Brady, since you are a new guest mm-hmm. on the show, you get to play a little game that we call Movie God. Are you a god? When someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes! Movie God. <laughs> uh so this is a game where basically I'm going to give you two things, uh, Brady. Uh, it's either going to be like two actors, actresses, directors, movies, composers for movies, something connected to the movie business. And you have to eliminate one of them from the timeline. So they just every- this like in, in the collective consciousness, like they're gone. Well, uh, my co-host Daniel would like to say, oh, they just didn't have a career in movies. I like to go a further step and say they never existed. They're dead. They're, okay. they're, they're dead to the world. I like that. So you have to, you know, consider everything they've done didn't happen or at the very least, like, you know, happened differently because they were not part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, s- sometimes directors, they come on to projects that other directors might have gotten. So I see it, so, you know, if, if you do have like any sort of background knowledge of like certain movies and stuff, directors did that. Oh, this director almost got it. Then you can like sort of weave that into your um, your decision. But basically, you got to eliminate one of these two things. And so this time out, I'm going to give you two Maverick directors Ooh. to choose between. So, Brady, you are the movie god and you have to eliminate either Sam Peckinpah or Ken Russell. Hmm. Let's see. Well, I am going to have to go with Ken Russell. Um, I think that this is less about Ken Russell not being dope because he's made some really great shit. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Devils is probably his best um, personally, but for me, it's about being pro peck and paw. Um, his, uh, his nihilism and uh, just way of seeing the world is is something I kind of relate to in a way mm-hmm. or that means about me or uh, says about me but uh, <laughs> yeah I think um, he's uh, also you know like um, growing up with like westerns and stuff like that mm-hmm. I think he was kind of the first guy that did westerns that were more my speed instead of like my grandpa's you know what i mean right like oh like there's westerns for weirdos you know what i mean yeah even when he did the more studio friendly westerns like ride the high country or something like Mm -hmm. that they were still kind of revisionist westerns but super early on yeah and for for people like us too like just the backstory of peck and paw like when things really started going downhill, you know, with like convoy where he wouldn't get out of his, uh, his trailer to shoot. And so, um, you know, they had to pick up the pieces for him. I think, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I never saw his very, very last one. Osterman, was is yeah. it Osterman weekend? Yeah. That's the only one I haven't seen. It's, it's a unique miss. I'll, I'll say that for it. Um, it's great for people like you and me, right? Like mm-hmm. I love that kind of shit. So, Yeah. Yeah, okay, I can I can I can sort of back that. I was thinking I'll 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 argue maybe Ken Russell's best one okay. is Tommy. Oh, sure. But sure. 
yeah, I was just thinking like sort of anti-authoritarian directors, Maverick directors. I thought they paired up pretty well. Um, I mean, for me, I probably would make the same decision you made. Honestly, mm-hmm. I think Peckinpah has more influential films overall mm. in a way. And there's some definite, like, um, like everyone cites the, the slow motion violence stuff that he did. Yeah. Which is kind of iconic at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. never necessarily know if Ken Russell has that same sort of thing on his reputation of like, Oh, Ken Russell was the first one to do this and everyone else does it as well. I don't know. He did all the like the psychosexual snake stuff, like the basically Madonna music videos before Madonna. <laughs> Lots of people on on, uh, on crucifixes and um, yeah, fever dreams. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know it when you see it. It's not as easily recognizable as Peck and Paul. That's for sure. Ken Russell definitely did more varied movies in his career compared to Peck and Paul. Peck and Paul, you know, he he was he was definitely in a milieu of, of sorts, you know, with, with certain mm-hmm. things, you know, like honestly, like convoys kind of almost uh, outside little movie for him other than, you know, the rest of his stuff is like, here's lots of shooting and killing lots yeah. of war. Yeah. Yeah. The only one that I can think of that um, is kind of outside of that was straw dogs. Actually. Um, that's actually the first peck and paw that I saw. Mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman was a sniveling little, you know, draft dodger guy who went over yep. to England and basically hid and people took advantage of his wife and it's like a revenge ish style but it's like saying a lot about masculinity that's kind of complex for a yeah there, there's there's definitely some complex discussions to have about uh, uh, Peck and Paw's thoughts on masculinity and what it <laughs> meant to be a man and his thoughts on women and yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's not that's not why i picked him <laughs> no no I, I i did not think that well done you came to your conclusion very quickly so uh basically i lost the game because uh, usually i the, the whole thing is i i want to make it super difficult for the person playing the game and try to stump them uh so far it's like our mutual friend vaughn uh, from mm-hmm. uh, motion picture massacre and like one other person i can't remember that i've stumped in the various times i've done this um so so you you are in the hallowed halls of of the valiant uh, conquerors in this game basically perfect yeah yeah i just got a bring me the head of alfredo garcia japanese movie poster from my fellow castmates Whoa. so this is this is on the brain so that's partially why i answered so quickly is um yeah wow. it's in the, it's uh, in the zeitgeist. i mean you know listening to your podcast i got the impression that uh, <laughs> <laughs> that they didn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's because I'm throwing all that chaos energy out and throwing landmines and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my own doing. No, I'm trying to get them to not like me is what it is. Oh, okay. You you're trying you're you're like me, you're trying to push people away. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then when, they, when they run away, I just ask them to love me. So, no, they they're 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 awesome. Allison and Josh mm-hmm. are yeah. fantastic people. So they're, they're very enjoyable uh, as well on Instagram. Follow them on Instagram. Well, I mean, we're going to put all the links to fucking everything in the show yeah. notes anyway. So uh, yeah, if you're not listening to solid six, you're stupid. <laughs> and uh, 
you should just be doing it. So, um, yeah, I'm going to steal that for our, our merch for next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I could probably get Michael Caine to just do like a promo saying, if you're not listening to solid six, you're stupid. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, so we got some comments. Uh, I, I fished for some comments tonight on the movie we're doing. And, and by the way, if you, if you didn't read the title, you just jumped into the podcast. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters from 1985. So I got a bunch of comments uh, from the Facebook group. Uh, they must be destroyed on site on Facebook, as well as Twitter. So, oh, sure. yeah, so we'll, we'll get into this. So uh, our mutual friend, Ellie Wallace, from Gets Off with Dr. Snuggles, hmm. uh, says, I don't know shit about the movie, but my comment is Brady is a gym. Oh, that's so nice. I haven't talked to them in a little bit, so that's awfully nice to be hearing from them over a recording. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, they've they've been on hiatus for a little while now uh, (laughs) due to some personal issues and stuff. But uh, I kind of anticipate Dr. Snuggles is going to be back pretty soon. I hope so. Yeah, I don't know where to get my softcore info from. Otherwise, they're the number one softcore podcast. Yes. Yeah. So um, now going on, we got Von Kuhlmeyer from uh, Motion Picture Massacre. And he says, this sounds like it's going to be a very in-depth, deep conversation. Big brain shit. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That's what we bring, Von. Not like like your your base podcast that uh, just does fart jokes all day. 100%. uh, Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, wait, we've both been on a show, right? You've been on a show. No, I have not been on a show. Oh, what? No, mm. I mean, Vaughn, I've had Vaughn on my show like three times now. He still hasn't put me on his show, so I don't know what's going on there. Dude, maybe that's why he's doing what he's doing. He's just throwing he doesn't. Shit. He doesn't like me. Like, we're we're going to do the uh, Mustachio Picastio in December. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's like, you know, we're going to do that together. But still no invites to his show. I don't know what's going on. You'll get there. Mm. I don't know if I want to be there now. Oh, it's oh. great. We had a great time. <laughs> I'm actually on with Daniel from Mustachio Podcast, yo, and we yeah, yeah, um, the Thirty Six Chambers trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I listened to the episode. It was good. We have Robert Ward uh, saying, "I watched the film last year after listening to the audio book of Spring Snow, mm. the first the first book of the Sea of Fertility." tetralogy by mishima uh i immediately bought two more books excuse me from the series including the beer is getting to me um including runaway horses which is adapted for this film Mm -hmm. Uh, i haven't read them though i have since tackled all the other mishima audiobooks and audible which includes the temple of the golden pavilion a fictionalized account of a real life incident, which was also adapted by schrader yeah for this film uh i'm utterly enthralled by mishima uh, even translated, I really get a sense of how he loved language and just find the prose so beautiful and heartbreaking. As for the film, I adore it. It's a highly stylized, but uh, such a masterpiece. Definitely one of the finest films about an author ever made. Mm. And yet, yeah, and I, th- I think we'll we'll get into our thoughts when we review the film. But uh, thank you for the comment, Robert. Yeah, I'm really interested to pick his brain. Honestly, so he should. Uh, I want to connect with him. Mm. He's definitely an author that I want to know more about. But for me, um, just where I'm at in my life, reading a bunch of different books by Mishima is Mishima. 
Probably not in the cards. (laughs) Too much podcasting. Yeah, that that's the problem I keep running into is like, oh, do I want to do normal human stuff today? No, I got a podcast. Uh, fuck. <laughs> um, yeah. So we have a comment from and this this gentleman, I believe, has been on your podcast a couple times or at least once. Uh, I think he did. Uh, I, I saw the devil with you. Yeah, Dirk. Uh, Dirk. Yeah, Dirk Marshall from the VH Us podcast. And that's an interesting podcast, by the way, if you people listening have not checked that out where he picks a movie and then he brings on a person who shares the same profession as one of the characters in the film, basically uh, usually the main character. So that is a very, very interesting gimmick for his podcast. And, and if you're, if you're going to podcast, you need a good gimmick and he's got one. So uh, uh, very enjoyable podcast. I recommend it for people listening here if you haven't checked it out. So he asked us a couple questions here. And he said, so first, favorite chapter and why? And then also, what food pairs best with it? So I'll throw over to you first, Brady. I got to go with the last one. Um, Mm -hmm. They're actually at the Armed Forces building. I can't remember what the name of the building is. But yeah, it's kind of got that handheld style, right? It's a little bit, feels a little bit more loose, a little bit more like documentary footage. Um, Mm -hmm. And given the events of my country this year um, gave gave some like January 6th vibes. (laughs) So uh, this is going to be just a big old plate of Big Macs. (laughs) 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 Okay. Running a government building and eating a bunch of Big Macs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is it supposed to be my favorite meal or what I think the meal would be that pairs with it? Just the one, just the one that pairs with it. Best pairs with it. Yeah. So, so freedom fries or something yes. along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, I think it's the, um, I guess it's the, what the house of Kyoko segment, the one with the sadomasochism and yeah, yeah uh, I really like that one. And I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about the movie, but uh, I kind of like it for like, it's sort of Lynchian kind of vibes to it and the way it's shot and stuff. And yeah. so like, it, it got me thinking like, well, the best thing to pair with it was would be what was it like um, coffee and pie that uh, the agent uh, does does in Twin Peaks. So yep. yeah, so the, that's that's probably what I'd go with coffee with blood, coffee with blood, <laughs> and our final comment. Uh, this is from Josh Legary, who is you know uh, a filmmaker in his own right and podcaster. Uh, if you have not seen his uh, documentary Clean Flicks, highly recommended from 2012. Uh, very good stuff. But he's also in the. Uh, I, I, I know him. There's a bunch of different podcasts sort of in this network, although I don't think there's an official name for the network of his fucking podcasts. Um, he's in the. Um, I mostly know him from the horror movie podcast. That's what it's called. And he's known, known as Wolfman Josh in that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he says, Hey, I know Brady say hi to, uh, me, uh, for each other. And so there you go. Hi, Brady. I met Josh back at the, um, 2010 Salt Lake city film festival. So I was a festival programmer there and, uh, I picked, or my crew picked clean flicks for Mm -hmm. our, our, uh, I think it was our first year too. So let me tell you, setting up a film festival, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) You think podcasting is hard? <laughs> you know, it's like basically throwing your money, throwing your money away. It is uh, a lot of effort to try to get 
you know, local companies to sponsor and, and fund right. it. So Josh was uh, a gem to meet and yeah, I uh, met a lot of really great people back then. So that's hilarious. I didn't know that he did a podcast. He's done several podcasts. Like he's, he's, he's done a couple different ones. Like he, so the, like the horror movie podcast, it's basically in the same group of podcasts. Mm-hmm. Like there's a sci-fi podcast that he's part of. Um, he was doing a couple other ones in there. Like I, I haven't, necessarily been listening lately so i don't know if he's still associated i assume he still is um but yeah like you know filmmaker podcaster like his podcasts that he's been part of have actually like won awards of some sort cool like um, i've maybe even emmys for podcasting i don't know if that sounds right or not holy shit something along those lines but um yeah, no, he, he's he's the real deal, and if you listen to him on on podcasts and stuff, he's he's a really nice guy and knows his shit and a good filmmaker too. So, uh, yeah, cool. Hi, Josh. <laughs> yeah, hi, Josh. So, moving on, uh, we can talk about what we've watched uh, as of late. I have nothing really to talk about, so I'm just going to throw over to you, Brady. Cool. So I was actually hanging out with Matt of Movie Melt. Uh, mm-hmm. He had me over and he introduced me to the direct-to-video production company, PM Entertainment. Are you familiar with them? I am not. Okay. So they're probably most well-known for Van Damme's Inferno. That was at the tail end of their existence. I think they they disembarked on their journey at the, yeah. the 90s, early 2000s. But okay. we watched a... a Terminator ripoff called Cyber Tracker, starring Don the Dragon Wilson. So, this is uh, <laughs> about a guy who's essentially playing the head of a Secret Service type outfit for a corporation that does computerized justice. Oh, okay. and uh, there's a deep dark web of the, the senator that they're protecting is actually in cahoots with the manufacturers of this and the probably my favorite part of this is that's unique is the way he like is talking to his computer. I mean, this is essentially what 20 years before the movie, her with Joaquin Phoenix and Scarlett. Oh, yeah. 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 And Don Johnson's just staring at this computer screen that has, you know, like the oscilloscope, like black background with the green mm-hmm. waveform. And he's, just, <laughs> he's flirting with, he's flirting with this computer. And Oh my God. It's a it's a great time. Um, the other thing with PM Entertainment is they had a lot of explosions. So I was actually kind mm-hmm. of impressed um, that they, yeah, they had cars flipping and exploding constantly. And um, it wasn't it wasn't the same car over and over again like trauma. It was just you know. no, no, uh, no, no. I don't think so. But according to Matt, like this is still like not even the most impressive stuff they did because he's he's covering one of their movies for Movie Melt. I can't remember which one. My okay. apologies, but. It was a good time. You know, it's one of those good movies to like, if you're hanging out with friends, you want to drink and like talk and then stop and see a cool scene and then talk when it's boring again. You know, it's, it's one of those good. Yeah. Yeah. And then Matt does like, he'll go like hard into like some of these companies and directors and stuff like that. Like he'll, he'll like Chuck Vincent has been like a project of his lately (laughs) (laughs) where he, where he's like actually, restoring Chuck Vincent films, like upgrading them and putting them on YouTube. So yes. it's like, yeah. 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 He, uh, he knows the shit for sure. Uh-huh. So I definitely lean on him when I'm, when I'm looking for something I'm, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but other than that, I watched magic Mike again. Oh, uh, yeah. I watched that last night. So for Thanksgiving, 
um, had Josh Nelson over from Solid Six and mm-hmm. my wife and I. So the four of us trying to appease the four of us and our, you know, tastes of the day <laughs> can be a little challenging sometimes. So um, some some people in the room were fairly adamant about Magic Mike and I had enough drinks in me to be like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. <laughs> I like it. I mean, gave yeah. stars on on Letterboxd a couple years ago, but I was keeping my Blu-ray copy of Champagne and Bullets from Vinegar Syndrome, mm. you know, and that right next to the player, ready to go. Yeah, but I was voted down. God damn it! Uh, <laughs> Champagne and Bullets is a fucking experience. That that's an enjoyable fucking film. Like fantastic movie. Like it it transcends so bad. It's good. Like it it's just good. Yeah, <laughs> because it's so bad. <laughs> yeah. Magic Mike, Champagne and Bullets, they're both good, but very different. Very different. Uh, <laughs> Have you seen Magic Mike? I've seen Magic Mike, but it's no Champagne and Bullets. No, I mean Champagne and Bullets has the benefit of like having a massive wannabe filmmaker behind it, <laughs> hanging mm-hmm. out with Wingshauser. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, the combination there is so much better. Like Magic Mike's, you know, a professional movie. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I've been saving my copy of it um, for like a couple months. So I might just have to sit down and watch that by myself, which I don't think it's going to be as fun. So I'll, I want I want to try to get get a round two of the, the group watch. I don't know how anyone could not sit down as a group and not enjoy Champagne and Bullets. Like that's... <laughs> especially Josh and Allison. What, what, are, what are they even talking about? Like, <laughs> I mean, some of the, some of the stuff you guys have done in your podcast, there, there's no way they're not going to like champagne and bullets. Like, come on. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it with them, mm-hmm. but no, with magic Mike, uh, I forgot that Soderbergh did his like filter thing that he does sometimes, you know, all the way back with traffic. Yeah in the red filter etc this time i didn't remember because i think i'd watched magic mike xxl like a year or two ago but the first one has that it has a yellow filter like the entire movie mm-hmm. and i was mm-hmm. like nah this isn't working it's like all these male bodies of jaundice jiggling around yeah <laughs> this, yeah this pissed same film <laughs> i'm all right with magic mike it, it's fine it's yeah. slick entertainment kind of mm-hmm. you know yeah, well, it was only made for $5 million, and I think it made 115 so somebody's... Mm-hmm. Yeah, Blumhouse, you hacks. Like, <laughs> you just stole that idea. <laughs> <laughs> ah, all right, so we're going to take a quick break, play some podcast promos, some music, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about Mishima. And I don't know about you, Brady, but I think... We got this, man. We got this by the ass. You ungodly warlock. Motion Picture Massacre is dedicated to exploitation, cult, grindhouse, and horror films from the last 7,500 fucking years. I don't fucking know. It's everything. If you're interested in that, check out motionpicturemassacre.com or if you're on iTunes, search Motion Picture Massacre and you'll find it. This has been your announcer, Cowardly Fuck Your Bags, signing off. Eat a dick. You ungodly warlock.
right. Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. And I do have a trailer here, so we're going to play that right now. He was an intellectual who advocated action. He was a rebel who fought for tradition. He was an artist who shocked the world. Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas present a new film by Paul Schrader. Mishima. His writing shook the soul. His flamboyance captivated a generation. His vision challenged the conscience of his time. And on November 25th, 1970, his life became the ultimate expression of his art. Mishima. All right, and directed by Paul Schrader. You're not familiar with what he's done, and I don't think we ever done one of his films on this podcast. So he's written, and usually written with his brother, uh, the late uh, Leonard Schrader, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, the Yakuza, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull. Did a lot of Scorsese uh, uh, collaborations. Did Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, he's known for directing Blue Collar, Hardcore, American Gigolo, their remake of Cat People, uh, Affliction, uh, and Autofocus. Those those ones sort of stand out for me. Oh, you forgot, like- you forgot First Reformed, one of the best movies of the last five to ten years. Oh, I have not seen this. So. Oh. Okay. If you like sad bastard European existential religious movies, yes. I can get into that. <laughs> I mean... He he seems to constantly write about like lonely, conflicted men who are basically, you know, like uh, out of time, out of place in society, kind of thing. So, like, yeah, I mean, if, if it's got a bunch of that in it, I'll I'll jump into it definitely. <laughs> um, so yeah, written by Paul Schrader, Leonard Schrader, uh, Yukio Mishima. Based, so it's based on some of his writings. That these things pop up in the film. Uh, it's sort of like counterpoints to his life, I, I guess, uh, in comparisons to his life. Uh, we can't. We got Ken Ogata as uh, Yuko, Yukio Mishima, and here's where I start really butchering the names: uh, Mazayuki Shionowa as uh, Mazakaka Tsumorita, uh, Jun Chichi Oremato as General Mashita, uh, Nakio Otani as uh, Shizu. Her Okoa, Okoa Kato is Nasuko Hirokawa, and I'm I'm not even gonna keep going. It's just, <laughs> it's just it's just getting embarrassing at that point. It's like fuck. Um, and then, I mean honestly, a lot of these characters just are on screen for like three seconds for a couple yeah. of minutes. You know, it, it's much more just about Mishima more than anything else. So, uh, synopsis here from Nick Lopez from IMDb. This is a fictionalized account in four chapters of the life of celebrated Japanese author uh, Yukio Mishima. Three of the segments parallel events in Mishima's life with his novels, The Temple of the Golden Pavilion, 
Kyoko's House and Runaway Horses, while the fourth depicts the actual events of the 25th of November 1970, the last day, quote unquote. Getting into this, uh, when's the first time you saw this, Brady? It's been about 15 years. 15 years. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So this is the first Paul Schrader movie, uh, directed Paul Schrader movie that I'd seen. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of at that. I'm at that point in my life. Um, You know, I saw a lot of stuff in my early 20s from college that, you know, I'm like, I'm ready to go back because obviously I've changed a lot and my Mm -hmm. taste evolved. So when you when you reached out and said, hey, you know, here's here's a list of all the movies that we're thinking of. That one stuck out because I I want your take for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially since I know you've been covering a lot of like creature features and stuff that are older. It's kind of. Yeah, I just want to pick your brain about it. So, yeah. Also see how it stands up now that I first reformed as one of my favorite movies uh, ever. Um, so to go back to this was, was pretty interesting. What are your sort of general thoughts on this film? It, there, it's more complicated than when I saw it the first time, because, you know, I think I'm a little bit more politically conscious. And mm-hmm. so trying to think about this character and inserting him into contemporary life. Um, there aren't many people that I can think of that are, that come to mind that would be a, a person like this, right? A person that's an artist, but then is also part of politics, um, kind of a Renaissance person. And mm-hmm. I feel like this movie does a really good job of weaving in and out the complicated n- nature of this guy, mm-hmm. but not being Japanese or understanding the nuances of that. In some ways I felt a little f- frustrated only just because i was like oh man i want to know more more but i mean at the top of the show you brought up the person who had got all the books and i guess i could just get books to learn more but Mm -hmm. i felt like uh i wanted more but that's i think a good sign yeah so like the way this is structured like for people who have not got into this um it definitely jumps around so there's flashbacks uh there's scenes in present day like so it's kind of the more movie, the more dramatic this is a movie part of this film is the last day of his life where he's preparing for this thing that he is, he has staged, like he has planned and staged for a long time. Now he's going to attempt this, uh, to incite a coup basically. Um, and so you see that, but we get these black and white flashbacks of his life uh, from childhood to present day. And then we get these really stylized uh, segments sort of popping in and out of his stories and how they relate to his actual life and how those sort of things compare and contrast. And the film does a really good job of putting all these things in distinct styles and color palettes to, you know, keep them separated for the viewer to watch. And also like just the Philip glass score. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but like it's markedly different for each segment. Like, mm-hmm. it, like he, Philip glass chooses different ways to, to put the score on for these things. So um, it, it's very well done. Like this is the first time I've watched this. So um, it was, <laughs> this film kind of like washed over me like, Oh fuck. What the fuck am I watching right now? Like it's, 
fucking crazy like i'm seeing all these conflicting elements right like yeah. I, I i did not know who this guy was before watching this film so i did do a little bit of research like okay so he's a writer he was a right-wing guy who was into uh traditional japanese culture he was trying to like bring back sort of like samurai ideals into the modern age so like and you see in this film this guy as a child he is infirm like he's got childhood like infirmities in his childhood like he's he's sickly he's weaker than most children he's sort of taken under the wing of his sort of bigoted conservative grandmother she's mentally ill and like yeah. they kind of infer that he's uh almost locked down with her like mm-hmm. she won't let him out yeah she will not let him like go out and and, and see the world although at the same time she introduces him to uh, the theater in art. So there's these conflicting sides to it where, although like her conservative values and her, her also like sort of bigoted traditional values where, you know, we see one scene where they go to the theater and he bumps into two women and he apologizes and she tells him not to apologize apologize because they're just riffraff they're not like us you know kind of thing like she's very much about the older sort of caste system of japanese uh, society and that wells within his his life and and continues out through his life like those values stay there but at the same time he's introduced to art he's introduced to theater by her and he sees the uh sort of japanese no actors and like a male actor portraying a female and a very attractive male actor, which leads into his uh, conflicting sexuality. Um, I don't think it's ever been, I don't think it's necessarily ever been definitively stated whether he was bisexual or homosexual, but I, I get from what I've seen in this film, what little there is in it that he was at the very least like bisexual. He wrote a book, Forbidden Colors, right? About a uh, an older man who seduces a younger man. And I think you can infer from the fact that all of the books that at least were portrayed in this movie are pulling from Mishima's life. Mm-hmm. This book, has, you have to assume, it's not much of a leap to assume this is autobiographical, right? So oh yeah, he wrote the scripts with that as one of the chapters. Um, but Mishima's widow refused to let them have it in. Mm-hmm. So any any of the homosexuality is yeah it's not subversive it's overt but yeah if you weren't looking it looking that way maybe you could be like oh no he just appreciates the way the men look but he's not gay it's like mm, well, yeah uh this. yeah there, there, there's different versions of this film like the stuff that kind of showed in japan at least contemporary with like sort of its release they totally took out the segments of him going to the gay bar mm-hmm. yeah and then uh, the people that uh, Schrader, you know, were uh, the this, the estate of Mishima that Schrader was like contacted with and and, you know, getting the rights to make this stuff. They broke ties after the film was made because he included the sort of the, the, the gay material into it. So like there there is a there's a real weird sense of denial from yeah. the estate. And I kind of feel like also just from a lot of the people who are, you know, like fans of his and shit, like the the, the more right wing 
people who have been influenced by him in the uh, ensuing decades who've, who've like taken sort of taken uh, inspiration from his uh, maybe not necessarily from his writings, probably from his writings as well, but mostly from his attempted coup uh, at the end of his life. Yeah. It's kind of, it's, it's weird, right? Because he really appealed to a lot of people, um, obviously, because he was considered one of the, the biggest writers of his generation. And as soon as he did all of that shit um, where he tried to stage a coup, but we can get into that, too, whether or not he was mm-hmm. actually trying to do it. But um, there was a lot of distancing that people had with him, right? Not being able to separate the art versus, versus the artist, because even though he was talking about killing himself or, or doing these things in his books, it's like seeing it spill over into real real life was very shocking. Yeah. And so the the production notes and like interviews from from the producers, there were people they were trying to get for this movie that just refused to do it because they thought it was too too sensitive of material, and they had you know a full Japanese crew that was really hesitant because you had these you know white filmmakers coming in. So I, for me, it just seems like it's just right for things to go wrong. Yeah, politically charged. You know, credit to. Schrader and, and everyone else who put this together, like it's a fucking. I mean, you know, spoilers. It's a fucking fantastic film. Like it, it's you know put putting aside like separating artists from art and what Mishima actually did in his real life. Um, it I I found it was like a really incredibly sensitive and fair like kind of portrait of an artist. And how his life and his writings like interconnected. It, it feels like the sort of conflicting desires and ideals that were sort of in him never could really harmonize. Like, I guess his only solution was the only way to harmonize these things were to kill himself, basically. Mm-hmm. And Schrader himself, um, from the same interview, by the way, that uh, people listening, a clip I played at the beginning of the podcast. Uh, I think it's from the, like the Dick, Dick, Dick Cavett show or something like that. Um, Schrader goes on in that interview to say that he kind of believes that Mishima was uh, sort of like a high functioning schizophrenic who uh, compartmentalized his life, like the different aspects of his personality mm-hmm. and different lifestyles. And they never really met. So like he would, he would go to a gay bar and he'd be a gay man, but he would never be that same person if he went to like, you know, the military right. school or whatever. He'd, he'd be the totally different person there. Um, and, and it feels like like he could never harmonize all those things together to make himself a whole. Yeah. Um, which I found incredibly sad. Like if, if that's the case, that's mm-hmm. that really, really fucking sucks. Well, by no means am I a mental mental health professional, but I'll say that it seems like Mishima was a lot, uh, very intentional about his, at least his artistic choices, right? Mm-hmm. And what his artistic choices said to me through this movie, again, having not read his books, but like getting a sense, a taste of his books across three or four chapters, yeah, is that he struggles to feel alive, so he experiments with things that will make him feel alive. Right. So there's this yeah. kind of experimentation of like, what do I need to do to get that sense of vitality? And usually they're fairly destructive things. Yeah. He had this. Um, I, I think this is fairly well recognized that 
he sort of had this ideal, like that sort of this sort of th- through line that re- went through his art that he had this idea that once pure art, pure beauty sort of reached its apex, it should be destroyed. <laughs> it, yeah. it should it should not be left to like diminish yeah. to any degree. So and his personal life intersected with his art to the point where he seemed to just become his art, like live by the pen, die by the sword kind of thing. Like he, he, he got to a point where he sort of felt like he needed to live up to his uh, ideals in his personal life. Right. Yeah. Or else he would have felt like a fraud. Mm-hmm. Because he has this, uh, like in, in, in the movie states it too. Like he had this, this sort of inner shame where he tried to join the army in world war II. Um, and then he, he basically bitched out. Like he, he, he mm-hmm. claimed he had a, uh, you know, he was too sickly to jo- join the military. And in, and that was like a sort of shame that stuck with him because he, 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 up to that point, he had this ideal, like I, my biggest desire, like, I'm I'm very much into the samurai thing of dying for your master kind of idea. Mm-hmm. So like his the ideal of going to war and dying for your country, dying for your emperor basically was something he thought he believed in at the very least. And when he went to join the military and then he had second thoughts and lied about his his health. Um it was like a sort of apparently a private shame that he carried for a long time. Can you imagine like the the sc- military screening if you're going off to a world war and their level of screening is like if you cough too long then you're not fit. So it's like cough and he's just like, taking my cough for too long. It's like oh you got tuberculosis go home. Mm-hmm. I All mean, right. I guess technology at the time. <laughs> I mean, I kind of feel like the U.S. military wasn't much different at that point. Like yeah. uh, you, you could be like whether this is true or not, you could be like Ted Nugent and shit your pants <laughs> <laughs> and not get drafted to Vietnam. So like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Or Trump with the bone spurs. That's right. I oh yeah. yeah. Although, you know, it also helped that he was super rich too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he, he bought those bone spurs basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was a really, that was a really cool scene um, because, you know, he up to this point was kind of seen as, a weakling child you know he had a scene earlier where he was mm-hmm. he hopped up on this fence and was trying to joust with this other kid um and loses and so you just kind of see him as this yeah just this runt basically mm-hmm. and that was kind of the first time in the movie where it's like okay he he's manipulative like yeah. he, he can kind of one up people by lying his way out of it so yeah i think you're right like trying to the the kind of like treating life like dress up kind of aspects of, of him are really interesting. You know, it's like the military uniforms that he created Mm -hmm. LARPing. Very, Um, uh, very like fascist fetishist kind of thing. Like mm -hmm. the movie doesn't go hardcore into his sexuality, but I feel like Schrader still kind of drops little, little pieces here and there outside of the, the, the gay club sequence where, you know, if you look at the people he recruits and the way he dresses them, like he gets all these like 
young, attractive Ben. He yeah. dresses them in very fetishistic uniforms. He trains with them intensely. So they're in you know, dojo sweating and, and clashing swords together. Mm. Like, I, I feel like it's not so much subtext as it's just text. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I totally f- forgot about the the gay bar because um, there's so much packed into this movie. So when I said earlier, like there wasn't a lot of references to him being gay, like mm-hmm. actually, no, there's a good solid five to ten minutes. But back to the back to the uniforms. Have you seen the photos of the real photos? Of mm-hmm. they, they look like they're 12 years old. They're like yeah. old boys. Yeah, very young men. And there, I, I think there's 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 really something about as much as is his sexuality, whether he was bisexual or homosexual or whatever, where, you know, that is definitely an aspect of his personality. I feel like there's even more an aspect of his personality of where he desired the adulation of young men as like a leader character as a leader figure. So the little militia that he started, this sort of right wing militia that he started in his later life feels like it's really playing into some of those sort of facets of his, of his deep seated personality, right. Where he, he really wanted the adoration and respect of very attractive young men in military uniforms who want to die for their country kind of thing and die Mm -hmm. for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, um, I'll, I'll just, I'll just flat out say it. I don't like this guy. (laughs) I, 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 and I mean, I, I kind of want to sort of, tinder that a little bit by saying i I realized the guy was probably insane like there was definitely some mental illness there of of some sort if if he was not just totally insane and so he was not thinking straight and he was you know not helped by any in any degree with whatever mental illness he had um but the sort of like right wing uh fascist go back to uh, ancient Japan with the samurai ruling class ideals is mm-hmm. just bonkers. And yeah. I'm, I'm just glad that he never actually ended up hurting anybody or killing anybody, you know, like uh, at the, at the very least, this sort of coup that he tried to stage didn't end up with like 15 people dead, you know, which is one of the, those sort of things that happens more often than not. Yeah, I'm really I'm really conflicted about him personally because they do uh, reference various lines from his books and I find them to be fairly thought provoking or maybe like a little overly dramatic, especially since they reinforce the whole art versus action mm-hmm. versus action, maybe uh, four or five times. But I, I do th- I do think there is that kind of allure to him of like to be crass about it, like put your money where your mouth is, you know, yeah. so if you believe these things, like do something about it. And he did. he did. He did. I mean, that, that's the thing. Like I'll, I'll say this for him. Like he's not like some of these Nazi grifters that we see today, like Richard Spencer and yeah, these crying Nazis and shit that are trying to start shit, but they have no, real scruples like sure they they believe all these shitty fucking things most of them do mm-hmm. and 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 fully support them but they don't have the fucking balls to actually put them into action they they depend on the people that they uh inspire to do these mm-hmm. things for them um at the very least mishima was 
very much willing to die for this sort of ideal he believed in, no matter how twisted it was. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess I can give him credit for that in the sense, but it's like at the same time, you're, you're still a mentally ill person who killed himself and inspired a bunch of really problematic right wing people mm-hmm. afterwards. So yeah. it's like his, his legacy is very conflicting because yes, his, his, his art, his books, his writings, a lot of it's very interesting. It's very insightful. It has a lot to say, but he's a different guy when it comes to like making the separate the artist from the art, because his art is kind of him more than yeah. a lot of people. Right. Like it's not like Klaus Kinski where it's like Klaus yeah. Kinski's a piece of shit, right. but you can separate his performances from his person. Right. Right. Um, right. But Mishima, I, f- I feel like it's much more a gray area. Hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I wish I wish I had read more of his stuff uh, or, or read his stuff in preparation mm-hmm. for the show because I, I was drawn to a lot of the subject matter um, that's presented in the different chapters. Yeah. So the clouding of the actions that he's had, I'm sure that generally speaking, that like people aren't talking about him as much. Yeah. Because they're trying to sweep him under the rug. But I, I think that that's maybe a dangerous thing to do because if he was saying things that were really popular at the time, but it was a, as he liked to call it, a capitalist society, mm-hmm. then maybe he was touching into touching on things that are more universal than nationalism, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, he's here's the thing, like the, the stuff he was pushing against, even if it's coming from a really sort of backwards place like the the idea of like taking japan back to the dark ages is just that no let, let's not do that yeah. but the people he was pushing against in some cases at the very least are it's it's kind of a it's kind of a honorable like right on kind of fight like yes maybe maybe the u.s should not be you know the u.s and china and other foreign powers should not be telling japan what the fuck to do yep and should not be uh, sort of taking over and uh, basically in- influencing their culture to the degree that they're doing. I'm, I'm totally on board with that. Like I, I can definitely see that that as him as an artist, seeing those sort of influences in art and him pushing back against those things. I can see the frustration there. So I definitely understand that. Um, but his own sort of background and the sort of conflicting ideals of masculinity and art and uh, tradition that were, that just seemed so twisted and warped in his psyche uh, just sort of bring his, his struggle. It, it comes from a bad place. Yes. I feel like, and yeah. yeah. And it's just, and that's what makes the movie so interesting because you can definitely see the human being under there and you can see the faults and you can see the bad place that he came from. And you can still sort of empathize with the things he was thinking and the things he was trying to push against, even if a lot of them were, yeah, no, it, you, you need to maybe stop. You maybe need yeah. to not overthrow the government and, right. and, and try to reinstall the emperor who does not want to be reinstalled in on the, as the head of government, you know? Yeah. 
Well, I think there's even things more problematic than the nationalism, which is just his opinion of old people, right? It's like if mm-hmm. you're over 40 years old, you can fuck right off, right? Yeah, so he had this I, very yeah. dehumanizing aspect of for him of like, uh, yeah, like uh, I have disdain for decay, and it's like, well, what are you talking about? These are the most vulnerable people in your society. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them actually probably fought in World War II, right, yeah. to protect the country that you that you love and yet yeah there's this contradiction about his vanity yeah body yeah he had he had that vanity right and it came from his childhood being so sickly and weak and like later in his life he went hardcore into physically building his body Mm -hmm. and improving his health and that almost kind of just is another piece of art for him it feels like perfecting himself to the point where he's ready to kill himself. Like it just goes back to this ideal of like art should reach a pinnacle and never diminish. You should destroy it after that. Mm -hmm. I mean, the um, pavilion story is very much about that. It's very much about a, a character with a, with a stutter and an inability to connect with uh, a female and have, you know, any sort of like sexual relations or whatever, uh, destroying this, buddhist temple basically or whatever it was that uh was like an ideal of perfection mm-hmm. um and so yeah that 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 stuff kind of runs through everything he's doing here like he's very informed by his sort of like childhood traumas and just the abuse ba- like basically his grandmother was abusive like okay. she was fucking with him in ways that he should not have been fucked with like i, I was actually kind of getting a little skeezy like where is this going where He's starting to rub her legs and stuff. I was like, is this going to go somewhere that I don't want to see it go? Yeah. 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 That that is a really good, uncomfortable scene um, because she also says to him something along the lines of like, you know, so I can't remember what it was exactly, but it was something along the lines of like, I wouldn't be able to take care of myself if it wasn't for for you. So like the laying on the guilt early on as a little kid to, to basically scare him into thinking like she's going to fall apart if he's not. Yes. Um, that's bananas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very, very like she, his grandmother took him away from his mother and basically made him like a house servant in her house. Yeah. Is essentially what it was. And he was like, never away from her side for like, how many years or whatever in his upbringing. And it's, do we, do we know why he was taken away? <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm assuming maybe I'm assuming maybe his mother was single. Yeah. That seems that seems like the most reasonable thing given sort of Japanese culture as well where they're they're much more for like a traditional family with a, you know a strong male figure and stuff and I'm, I'm assuming that's what it was. I didn't do any reading on it. If anyone's listening and they know, please feel free to correct. Please. Yeah. Yeah. Because there there was a moment where she she kind of snapped her fingers and was like, "Hey, you're welcome to go live with your mom again." And all of a sudden, there's a a scene or two later, and it he's with the younger woman that you have to infer that's his mom. But it doesn't really mm-hmm. beyond that awkward like leg rubbing scene and not being allowed to see his mom. We don't really get to know the trans like the dynamic of transferring guardianship between them. And that's why yeah. going back to the beginning of this episode when I said, you know seeing this now the second time, it's like, I want to know more because it's just such a weird, unique story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and I mean, me watching this for, for the first time, it's like, wow, I, I, I'm definitely going to be rewatching this a couple times because yeah. there's much more into it. Like I was, I was actually just getting lost in the visuals half the time. Like it, it's so, it looks so good. You got that Philip glass score going in the background. It's like, yes, yes, yes. Let's watch this shit. Let's watch this whole sequence. That looks like a David Lynch film, David Lynch, you hack. It looks like blue, <laughs> blue velvet before blue hell, blue velvet, you know, like <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> I, I, I do have to read this though. Like I, I was like, okay, so I'm going to, I'm going to take a little peek on letterbox and I'm going to see what people sort of thought of this. And I saw this one review, this one really snide review that I thought was kind of funny, but also, you know, very dismissive at the same time. Mm-hmm. It was in a, in, I quote, killing yourself to own the libs. <laughs> this is <laughs> kind of, kind of sums it up in a way. <laughs> but, I feel like he's just killing himself to own everybody. I mean, yeah, narcissist he is. I don't even. That's. I'm just kind of skeptical of like his love of the country in general. But again, I. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, how much of it is a performance, right? Like, it's it's been suggested that the uh, coup attempt was only like a pretext for him to do his ritual suicide and just you know put on a performance in a show more than whether he was actually a right wing nut job or not. I don't know. Yeah. And the clues that you have to that when you're watching the movie, at least I think is when he goes to give his speech and everyone's shouting him down, Mm -hmm. he looks up at the helicopter and then he just turns around and said, Oh, they wouldn't listen to me. And then he, you know, they, they get it done. So like, it seemed like a little bit like he was going through the motions. I don't know if Mm -hmm. it was intended to be represented that way, but it did feel like, he had recited this thing. He knew it wasn't going to be yeah. adopted. So let's just get move on to the next step of this screenplay of my life. I mean, he definitely had an end goal. Like this, this was all orchestrated well beforehand. So yeah, wh- whether his heart was actually in these sort of ideals or whether it was just more a reflection of his, him personally. And yeah, yeah. I I don't I don't know like that that's the thing I again I kind of want to rewatch this a couple times and see if yeah. I can make a solid conclusion on it but for sure yeah did you read uh, up on the the design it's a pretty incredible story how it all went down the set design I I did not all all I did was kind of get <laughs> uh, sort of you know washed over by how fucking beautiful some of these segments looked like like when you're when they're doing the um the segments that are based on his stories, they're, you know, very obviously sets, but they're incredibly beautiful ones, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, uh, the production designer is Aiko Ishioka, and she was a designer who worked for the Japanese arm of American Zotrope, the Francis Ford Coppola production company. And she had made posters for Apocalypse Now. Oh. So the Japanese movie posters for Apocalypse Now were so dope that they're like, Hey, like, let's, let's check in on this artist. And so she was young. She had never done any like set design stuff. And, uh, Paul Schrader met her. She said like, I don't like this guy. And he's <laughs> like, great. That's what I want. Let's work together. Um, you know, cause I don't want you to have some sort of strong opinion that's clouded by, uh, based on you loving him that will affect how you make this. Mm-hmm. So she would just go to town making sets and illustrations and things like that. And um, kudos to her. Cause I think mm-hmm. it might've been her first movie. 
as a set designer, a production designer, and that's pretty pretty incredible. And they look really good, and there's like there's some there's some like vaginal imagery in in some of them too. Like is especially when like the 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 golden pavilion temple kind of opens up <laughs> at one point. Um, yeah, and like just going on that thread, I I don't feel like Schrader necessarily throws a narrative into how he thinks about Mishima either. Like he leaves it fairly open. Like he's just like, here's the guy, here's his art. Here's how they overlap. Make your own decision on what you think about this guy kind of thing. Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't feel like it overly romanticizes him or anything like that. Like I, I feel like it's fairly straightforward and fair. It's like, this is what kind of happened. And, but here's this, you know, also at the same time, here's this sort of meta display of this, you know, where we're interweaving his personal life and his stories. And it's so brilliantly done. Like, and, and it's so easy to follow. Like, it feels like this is going to be a daunting fucking art host film that is going to be so complex. It's like, no, it, it is complex, but it kind of leads you by by your hand, too, at the same yeah. time. Like, it's, it's very, very well done that way. Yeah, and I think the the thing, the secret sauce of what you're talking about is it bobs in and out of his real life and his books in a way that allows you to connect the dots fairly quickly mm-hmm. to the motivations for his life, imitating art or vice versa. Right. Um, so the aspects of uh, wanting to, I think the, the first example that I can think of that really comes to mind is the temple, of the gold pavilion, when he is at the, place to get into the army what's called not a hospital whatever to get checked in and he he Mm -hmm. and then leaves it then cuts to back to the story of the golden pavilion talking about wanting this um this pavilion to be destroyed because the war is over right you're getting this kind of sense of oh he laments not being in this in this war the war is now over. And so now he's going to have his fictional character destroy something beautiful because he wanted the, the American bombers to destroy it in a way. Yeah. So it's this really, like you said, meta, it's this very abstract concept that is weaved together very elegantly. Yeah. A few uh, key transitions in between real, real life and, and fiction. Yeah, I, I agree. I like it, there was no time where I was watching this, where I felt like, Oh, this is getting really obtuse. Like, what 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 is Schrader doing here? No, it's very very straightforward and just done in such a like an artful kind of beautiful way. And I was just like, oh fuck, this is this is the shit. Like <laughs> I'm I'm watching I'm watching something that's on my best of list for this year. Basically, you know. Nice. Yeah, I love this. It was it was, it was fucking great. There is one thing not to not to take the wind out of your sails, but mm-hmm. I've been wanting to talk to you about this because you're a fellow uh, soundtrack head, given your mm-hmm. blood, blood on the tracks uh, series. Philip Glass, I don't know, man. As I as I get older, it's nails on a chalkboard. Sometimes, I mean, his score is so overwhelming. Sometimes um, mm-hmm. that hearing the same style as like Kono Skatsky, um in this movie, it didn't work as much as it did the first time. It worked okay for me in this. I, I agree. Like a lot of his stuff is a little too similar th- yeah. from film to film. Uh, like I really like Candyman, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I like this quite a bit. 
I could take him or leave him otherwise kind of thing, but I kind of feel like it's, it's a pretty decent marriage here with his stuff, especially, especially when he's doing slightly different stuff here and there with the different segments. I, I think it kind of works for me fairly well, but I, I, I get it. I, I definitely get it. Like Philip Glass. Yes. A lot of his stuff is very, very similar from film to film. So. Yeah. I guess I just have a hard time. Cause it's like, I, I just see him as the guy that works with Errol Morris or other documentary filmmakers. So mm-hmm. to have that style over like papered over this entire movie. Um, I think of I, Nozo, like the, the part that was uh, interesting sonically was when he used those themes during the BDSM mm-hmm. after where it was using guitar. Yes. Yeah. Instruments, right. He went from like the bells and the strings that he's known for and did this kind of like plucking electric guitar thing that yeah. gave it a sense of being different. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't, when I'm watching movies, I don't want audio wallpaper. I want the movie to either have the music and have it contribute something or not have the music. Mm-hmm. And just, yeah, just the peanut butter spread kind of thing. Last <laughs> <laughs> scores kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I'm, I'm on board with you there. So I feel like we both recommend this film. Yes. I think it's pretty obvious. Um, you have any sort of final thoughts before we sort of move on towards the end of the podcast? Um, so a little bit more about the production. It's kind of interesting that this was saved by George, George Lucas. So mm-hmm. this is at a time when early 80s, Lucas, Coppola, uh, you know, they were importing some movies. So they did Kagamusha, the Kurosawa movie. Yeah. Um, and this movie ended up costing, I think, $5 million, yeah. two of which was uh, funded by Japan, by Toho, mm-hmm. I believe, and three by the US. By I think, uh, I think Toho denies it, though. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So the idea here is that they all showed up like they were in pre-production and they were getting everything lined up, but the money hadn't fully come in. And so they turned to Lucas and he helped bail it out. So it's kind of weird that a, a person like Lucas would be associated with a movie like this. It's so kind of high concept. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but but at the same, cool. Yeah. But at the same time, like I, I feel like as much as Lucas, is just the weirdo star Wars guy. Like, I mean, he, 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 he does have a lot of like interesting sort of like side projects and yeah. stuff that he's, he's done. So like he's always, you know, he, deep down he is a film nerd and he was looking to do stuff like this. And it's kind of cool. Like, Oh, Francis Ford Coppola and George Lucas, who are probably outside of Spielberg, kind of the richest guys in Hollywood at this point with all their success. Sure. They're just, they'll, they'll fucking burn a few million dollars into this production, whether it makes money or not. Why not? They're, they're more interested in actually having the actual thing made. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it just seems like there's a lot that could have gone wrong. I mean, like, so the Paul Schrader and his brother, Leo Leonard, um, mm-hmm. co- co- co-wrote the script. They weren't really on speaking terms at that time. Oh, okay. so Leo's wife, uh, Chico, uh, was basically the arbiter between the three. Arbiter? The uh, arbitrator? Arbitrator, yeah. Uh, I think I think that's the same thing. Okay. Um, and so she was translating their scripts uh, because she's Japanese. And so she was translating while also trying to keep these brothers from not working well together. Okay. Also trying to, you know, connect with the Japanese 
film crew while also, Mm -hmm. you know, trying to steer people towards Paul because he's the director. So it just seems like a very complicated uh, relationship. Add to that the fact that all of the on location shoots, anything out in the open, they got done first because they were worried about uh, protests. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, So there was security concerns about people storming the, the film set. So. They knew what they were doing, um, and it's pretty crazy that it got made at all. Yeah, it really sounds like it. Um, so yeah, budget was what, like you said, it was five million. Did not do well in the box office. Uh, Five hundred thousand dollars, basically, is, is what it made. Um, uh, that that's I think that's just U.S. I don't know what it made outside of that, but I don't think it ever made its budget back real necessarily. Hmm. Um, but um, like like again. I feel like, you know, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, who just had like a couple spare million laying around the dump in this. They didn't give a shit if it succeeded necessarily that on, on that that level, because they they are they have already tasted massive, you know, commercial success. So it's like, yeah. you know, we, we 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 made our big successful movies. Let's make one for us kind of thing. You know, yep. I, I like that. Um so if you want to find this one, there are a couple versions on YouTube. There is a just totally Japanese language version. There's one with the uh, Roy Schreider uh, uh, narration. Sort of narration with subtitles. Uh, there's a there's a couple other narrated versions as well that have come out in subsequent releases. Um, I think probably you can find them all on the Criterion Blue and DVD, I'm assuming. Criterion usually gets that yeah. shit right. Yeah, and, uh, and their streaming version has all the supplements from the physical disc, other than one BBC documentary on Shima. Oh, cool! Uh, so, also, you know, and also on Amazon Prime and iTunes. And uh, let's see here: do is there anything in the trivia that we haven't covered? Um. Well, it, it's never been released theat- theatrically or on home video in Japan. Uh, up until 2019 at the very least that's fucking crazy mm. what i heard what i heard was that once it was released on video basically if you work in the japanese movie industry you have a copy right yeah so, like if they're smuggling this in or whatever importing it not smuggling it very different things <laughs> they're having to import this vhs or dvd or whatever at the time that's uh it's kind of depressing because it's yeah like, if it's a key aspect of culture and film culture and it's not readily available. It, it did. Um, it did get shown on Japanese t- TV quite a lot, apparently, but um, this is the version that has all the uh, gay bar scenes removed. But they kept, so, the, they kept the suicide. They, they did. The- <laughs> yeah. Like, so, like the big stickler, I guess, with with Japan in this film is is basically there's certain elements of people that, including the estate of Mishima, that do not want his sexuality talked about, or hinted at, or whatever. Right. So I would have I would have assumed that an edited version would have been when they're driving to the military building. It just mm-hmm. looks to black. <laughs> <laughs> See them driving off in the sunset. You know, <laughs> yeah. music plays. <laughs> Yeah, maybe. He's going to play um, military man. <laughs> All the friends. Yeah. Uh, well, that does it. Fuck. Um, Brady, it was an absolute fucking pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed having you on. Thanks, Lee. 
I am very glad to have been here. Yeah. And so please plug your fantastic fucking podcast that I recommend everyone listens to. Yeah. So it's solid6.net. Um, so Alice and Josh and I all host a double feature um, based on some sort of theme. The three of us have different tastes. So you're going to get kind of a different flavor every every few episodes. So I think that uh, if you look at the D&D character chart, we're the chaotic good. Uh, <laughs> so um, just recorded our night on the Hun- night of the hunter episode. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we're doing a uh, Policio Teshi of if die like a cop live like a cop die like a man and caliber nine yeah uh, yeah yeah okay (laughs) i look forward to those (laughs) i fucking look forward to those i think you're i I see you as a bit of an expert on these types of movies i could be wrong but uh live like a cop die like a man i love that fucking film um we we did quite a bit of policio earlier on in the podcast yep. we'll eventually get back to it but um yeah live like a cop die like a man that's one of the more unique ones because the main characters are total sociopaths <laughs> and they're they're just fucking crazy um yeah, yeah. Director uh, of the holocaust i didn't realize it was the same guy mm-hmm, yeah diodardo yeah yep yep um one of the i, I think you maybe only did one other police Hitesky, i think like mm. something like that um but fuck I look forward to that. Uh, our artery enjoyed your uh, out of the past episode was really, really good. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. It's always good to be able to share one of my favorite movies with people and get kind of a different perspective from my castmates. I don't mm-hmm. know. That's the thing. I, I, my, my podcast, I'm so lucky because Josh and Allison are super smart and they're some of the funniest people I know. So just, you know, I kind of throw little ideas out and then they just kind of run with it and I get to participate in the humor. You're being far too humble, but uh, I'll just I'll just tell people to go and listen to the podcast and decide for themselves. Uh, the, I'm sure they'll end up agreeing that uh, you add quite a bit to the podcast as well. So uh, it's wow. an equal it's an equal it's an equal third of, of the podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. Yeah. Um, so not sure what we're doing next and not sure when we're recording next, but we'll be back with something or other. And uh, you're definitely invited back uh, whenever, uh, Brady. So um Look forward to having you back on at some point. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And until then, we're gone. Bye-bye.
for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For further episodes, our Apple Podcasts, Facebook, and YouTube links, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. Thank you.